Okay, one thumb, two thumbs, glasses come off. Really fast there, we just had to, we had some reorganization and we had speakers and microphones that were feeding back. That was part of our problem. We'll be back on September the 11th. Uh, we're going to take, this is my final push maybe, hopefully probably all of September will be the final push, but I've got all kinds of problems to deal with. And we're going to try to get them all done before we get going again on a regular basis. So back on September 11th. Uh, and I have a whole bunch of unanswered letters come in. And I'm, folks, I'm working on them. I get to them as fast as I can. And they're really terrific. And I'll start picking them off here as time goes by. So please uh, be a little patient with me as we push through the... we got to go before the snow falls. You know, that's the problems up here. Okay, here we go. August uh, the 21st, 2022, lecture discussion number 180 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, Genesis 1 through 3, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and Genesis 15. Okay, we're, we're going to return to those four questions that we've had, that we've been working on last week or last time we were together. And before we return to them, those are Judges 19. Um, and there, there are four questions, but let me repeat this a bit. They're one question, actually. That's why I put them all together. Um, and it's Judges 19, 20, 21, Genesis 6, 4, Genesis 3, 4, and uh, 1 Samuel 17, 54. And those were the passages that were uh, in, of concern to these, these folks. And, and they were imported uh, by people, uh, Illinois Kathleen. And, and we're still doing it, Illinois Kathleen, so hang in there. Bill the Cow, of course, the other Daniel, and Antarctica Gabriel. And we haven't even begun to accumulate or consider the collectivity of Scripture that accompanies these passages, so keep that in mind. And I thought that I needed to recover something, not recover, but reinstitute or reinforce a constitutional attribute of Scripture. In other words, something that Scripture is built upon, as a precept, if you will, or a foundational tenet. And it's something that I refer to constantly because of its essentiality. It's absolutely necessary, if you're going to read the Bible, for all readers of God's Bible, to understand this constitutional element here. You have to comprehend it, especially uh, such uh, while you're undertaking the study of Scripture. If you're going to study Scripture, you have to know certain things in order to get anywhere, in my view. And, And as you read, you have to recognize at all times that the Bible, God's living word, he calls his Bible a living word. His living word is his perfect, his living book, is both alive and infinitely connected. That's Hebrews 4.12. So you have to recognize I have an infinitely connected book in a finite container. At least I think it's finite, but it's not. And it goes all directions, and it's almost impossible. It is impossible for a finite mind to comprehend what the Bible is doing. He also calls it a living book simultaneously. It's alive. And obviously, I'm designating the Greek word here. That's, it's teleon. I am saying that that word, is, is, it's a gender neutral word, so it doesn't, it doesn't refer to a specific person. I'm saying that it's referring to the completion of the scriptures when you see the word perfect. And you'll find that scripture, when the perfect comes, the perfect is teleon. When the perfect comes, uh, the partial, the imperfect passes away. It fades away. That's what the Bible said. And hopefully you will agree that it would be advisable to identify what the imperfect is now. If the perfect is coming and the imperfect fades away, we should know what the imperfect is. And for today, note that opinions on the perfect vary quite a bit. Some say it's Christ. Some say when Christ comes. And others say it's the eternal state, the new city of Jerusalem. Those are two examples. And I don't discount those uh, uh, there's suspenitionary conclusions. They're suppositions. I don't dis- discount them. I've read those things, and I've compared them to my view that uh, what Paul is indicating, he's revealing that the Holy Spirit inspirationally is collecting the books of the Bible, and he hasn't quite done it. That's what he's calling the, the coming of the perfect. So when the perfect comes, the imperfect fades away. Uh, my view is that it, that, is the, that is the Bible. I'd hold it up except mine would fall apart again. So I won't do that. And I, 
I submit that the, that the view, the latter view that I just uh, gave you, is far more fortified against the ecclesiastical assailment that we always see, especially on the Internet, and Dave would know better than anybody about all that. I don't do it. I don't get involved in that. But I know that Dave is out there battling, and, and, and good for him, and Bill the Cow, and all you others that are doing it. It's wonderful that you're doing it. I just simply don't have time. I have done it in the past, not on the Internet, but in, in different forums. And it was never productive. I was always up against a stone wall that I couldn't move, and, and logic didn't matter, and reason didn't matter, and so I just finally said, okay, I'll go my way. But anyway, I, I think that the position that I'm giving you, that the perfect uh, is the, the collection of the Scriptures as the Holy Spirit intended, and I submit that that view is far more fortified against ecclesiastic assailment, uh, as I said, even though uh, the other views are very well published. And I've got Jeremiah 31:33 on my side. I've got Hebrews 8:10, Hebrews 10:16, Ezekiel 36:26, Romans 2:14 and 16 through 16. And those are just a few of the verses that I think contribute to the position that the perfect is the accumulation, is the Holy Spirit's gathering of the Scriptures into the living Bible that is infinite. So you have to begin with that. When you're reading the Bible, you have to say, wow, this is perfect, it's infinite, and it's alive. Now I can get somewhere. Now I can read this thing, this Bible, and I can figure out what's going. That's the view that you come into. If you don't have that view, uh, you just, you're in the ditch. We'll find you later. Anyway. Allow me today a little, instead of the four questions, well, that's not really true. I'm tricking you once again. I, I have here, uh, it's a fake diverting. I want to divert, but it's a fake diverting. I'm still answering the four questions, but you'll never notice it. Because why? I'm incredibly, uh, what? Uh, well, I'm the HTRP, and I'm devious. Maniacal, some might think. But we're, so I, allow me a brief diverting. It's a fake diverting. Because, like I said, I'm still answering the four questions. And I think it, what I'm going to do is going to exhibit my point that I just made. Yay, a point. And I'm going to try to do it briefly, but as you know, briefly is a relative term. And we've got a late start here, so I've got completely no idea. I have totally lost all track of time now. I don't know how long I've gone, so that means I'm unencumbered completely. And, I, and you're going to be gone, and I'm going to be gone until September 11th, so, you know, here we go. Yeah. Just go forever. Eight people just left. Okay, Matthew 6, 9 through 13, Luke 11, 2 through 4, that's what? Yes, if you raised your hand and you get a skittle for saying the Lord's Prayer, that's the Lord's Prayer. Those are the Lord's Prayer passages, and they are known to almost everyone who's ever attended a Bible-believing church. And in many buildings, these, uh, the, the Lord's Prayer, these words are prominently displayed and they're recited every Sunday. Uh, one might suppose then that what? That the recitational process would correspond to a remedial understanding. Comprehension of the meanings, in other words. If you're going to recite it every day, and you're going to do it every Sunday, or not every day, but every Sunday. Some people do it every day, and I think that's fantastic. And I really appreciate churches that do it every Sunday. But I would hope that you knew what it meant. How many meanings do you think they have, those, those verses? How complicated do you think they are? And I, I say, use the plural. How many meanings does it have? Say with me, meanings. There are many meanings here. How many meanings do you suppose are within Matthew 6, 9 through 13 and Luke 11 to 4? That's the question for today to repeat this constitutional attribute. You, I've already told you, Approach this stuff, approach the Bible as if it's a living Bible, it's alive, it's infinite, it has been accumulated by the Holy Spirit and compiled, and it's perfect. It is the perfect that has come. Again, the question is, what was the imperfect that has faded away? Because it replaced the imperfect. What was the imperfect? I think that's obvious. Hopefully you're all screaming at me what, what the answer is. I can't hear you today, but I hope you're screaming. The perfect has come, it's alive, and it's infinitely connected. And now answer the question again. How many meanings does this perfect, alive, infinite book have with respect to the Lord's Prayer? How many meanings do you think it has? Christ gave that prayer. That's God himself in the flesh giving that prayer. How many meanings? What's your percentage do you know? 
In other words, how many meanings of the meanings do you have? What's your percentage? What's your completion percentage if you're a quarterback? Do the math. Use your phone. I would say my experience has been that very few people have more than more than two meanings, and they may not even have those right. For example, do you attach Matthew 6, 1 through 8? Let me read it really fast. I'll just read the Lord's Prayer. Our, and I'll emphasize words, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. There's our Lord's Prayer. It's alive. It's infinite. It's interconnected all throughout the Bible. It's amazing. It's perfect. And do you attach Matthew 6, 1 through 8 to the Lord's Prayer? That's the context. So when you read the Lord's Prayer, what should you do? You should read what the context is first and at least have that as a, as a, as a keystone or as a linchpin. Do you read Luke 11, 5 through 13? Because that's the conclusion. There's an introduction and a conclusion to the Lord's Prayer. One of them is... Um, Matthew 6, 1 through 8. The other one is Luke 11, 5 through 13. There's, uh, there's two parables that are involved here. Uh, Luke 11, 14. 11, 14, I got the casting out of a demon from a mute man. That's involved in this prayer. And all the people marveled when the, when the demon was cast out of the mute man. Matthew 9, 32 through 33. This had never been seen in Israel before. It's never been seen since. A mute man had a demon cast out of him. It was an incredible sign. And that sign is attached to uh, the Lord's Prayer, Christ's Prayer. I should say Christ's Prayer. It works fine. And, and compare Matthew 12, 22 through 23. No one had ever seen it before, and they all said, wow, this is the sign of the Davidic covenant. This is the Messiah. Because the sign of the Davidic covenant is the casting out of a mute, of a, uh, I'm sorry, casting out of a, de- a demon of a mute man, because you cannot know the name of that demon. Because the man's mute can't reveal it. You ever ask yourself, why doesn't he write it? Hand it in, piece of paper. That's the Davidic sign. We'll get to that. We'll never get to that. I'll completely forget about it. But anyway. And you have things that have never been done before. You have to go out and get them. It's never been done before. For example, the sons of Belial, one time that had been done before. But it hadn't been done since. So they are, they are connected to anything that has never been done before. Naam and the Syrian, 2 Kings 5. Christ healing lepers, never been done. Luke 4.27, Luke, uh, Leviticus 14. Genesis 15.10 is here. So just exactly how is the introduction, Matthew 6, 1 and 2, and it's merely uh, two verses. And let me read those. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory from men. How does that affect the Lord's Prayer? Because that's in the introduction to the Lord's Prayer. You think it's all accidental? That none of it connects? It doesn't build one on the other? It absolutely does. It always does. So how does Matthew 6, 1 through 2 fit with Matthew 6, 9 through 15? That's the question. Again, don't do charitable deeds before men because you want to be seen by them. Don't do that. Otherwise, you're not going to have any reward from your Father in heaven. He says, Father in heaven. And then he gives you the Lord's Prayer. Those are tied intimately. Does Jesus Christ, for example, to give you a dumb question, know does he realize that he says Father in heaven at Matthew 6, 1 and Matthew 6, 9? Does he know that? He repeats it, duh, duh, duh. Does he know? 
The introduction of the Lord's Prayer is about the hypocrisy of the synagogues of that particular time, the Pharisees, the vain babbling of the heathen. He says, do not babble like the heathen babble. What are you thinking? Do not be like the hypocrites of the Pharisees or the pagans. Don't be like either one. And here's the Lord's Prayer. So your introduction leads to that. And instead he says, be in secret. And here comes an amazing thing. The Father is in secret. Matthew 6, 4, Matthew 6, 6. There's 12 times that Christ references the Father from Matthew 5.48 to Matthew 6.31. So this, from that, from 5.48 to 6.31, we're in a triune passage. This is the triunity on display here. The Godhead. Genesis 1.26, the Elohim, the us. Genesis 3.22. Does the second person, Jesus Christ, of the infinite omniscient triune Godhead, does he know, does he realize that he has used the word for Father 14 times? Can he count to 14? Obviously, the answer is obvious. The Greek here for Father is Peter. Peter. And it's 14 times. And notice that Christ begins this reference to the Father in heaven in Matthew 45 through 48. Uh, That you may be sons of your Father in heaven, he says. That's how he begins. All of this is leading to the Lord's Prayer. And it's going to tell you what the meaning of our Father in heaven is. Because our Father in heaven has a meaning. What is the meaning? It's our Father, and he's where? He's in heaven, he's also where? In the secret place. How many questions you got right now? I hope you got a whole bunch. And he says, Christ says this, Therefore you shall be perfect just as the Father in heaven is perfect. Guess what word he uses again? So here's what I have. I have the Father in heaven, our Father who art in heaven, is perfect. Our Father who art in heaven is in secret. I got two things here. He's well. I actually have three. He's in heaven. He's perfect, and he's in secret. In the secret, it's critical that we pray in our Father in heaven. That's how we start. That's critical. Why is it critical? When he says, "Pray this way," therefore pray, "Our Father in heaven." Don't say "Our Father." Say "Our Father in heaven." All those words are extraordinarily important. What are you real? What are you saying? You are saying something about the Father when you do it. So you got obvious questions here. There are multitudinous questions. Jesus Christ, the invisible God, made visible. Colossians 1:15, 1 Timothy 1:17, Colossians 2:9 introduces. In this manner, therefore, pray. That's what he says. In this manner, therefore, pray. So do it this way. Don't do it like who? Don't do it like the heathen. Don't do it like the Pharisees. In other words, don't do it like the church people. Guess what? Our church today and the Pharisees are symbiotic. They rely on each other. And it's really awful. Don't be them, he says. Be in secret. I'm in heaven. I'm in the secret. Be where I am. Find me. In this manner, therefore, pray. Uh, that's also uh, Matthew. That's Matthew six nine, right? Begin with our Father in heaven. Matthew six one. Take heed that you not be, do these terrible deeds before men. Do it this way instead. Our Father in heaven. Do not sound a trumpet. Don't be like the hypocrites. They love to be standing in the synagogue, screaming their lungs out. You ever go to a church and there's somebody up there going, look at me, and, and these long-winded, nonsensical, babbling, rep- repetitive. It's almost like a Christian drinking game. I had a call the other day from Daniel. Uh, no, I'm sorry. I got a call the other day from uh, uh, one of my sons and his lovely wife. And they said they went to a church where they, these people were praying. It was like a Christian drinking game. Every time they said, Father God, take... Take a drink of water, 
But they're just constant. You would you'd, you'd be running to the to the laboratory or laboratory. Because it's just this nonsensical blah, blah, blah over and over and over again. And he says, don't do it, but we do it everywhere. Everybody loves to do it. I shouldn't pick on them, but they deserve it. Why don't you ever read Matthew 5.45 to, to Matthew uh, 6, where would I stop? 19? 6.18. Read it. And then ask yourself, am I doing exactly what the Pharisees are doing? Am I doing, am I up there putting on a show for everybody in the church to see me? And am I saying the same dumb words over and over and over again? That's what you're doing and I know it. I've listened to you. I've been there. I've been there most of my life to watch these kinds of things. It made me say, why is the church today so inconsistent with Matthew 5, uh, 45 through 6.18? Okay, where am I? I ranted, didn't I? And I don't know what time it is. Oh, I'm at 20 minutes. Wow. Okay. Maybe I need to go faster. And this, again, utter vain repetitions as the pagans. Go to Ecclesiastes 5.2 and look at that. And again, these are the prohibitions. They're, they're fairly straightforward, we think, but they're not. As usual, we need to ask, our straightforwards are not God's straightforwards. He gives you a bunch of, uh, not a bunch, but he gives you prohibitions. Don't be like these people. Don't do these things. Why does he pick on those? In other words, why did he select those? Of all the prohibitions with regard to prayer, those are the ones he gave us. And Christ provides the answer to that, beginning at Matthew 5.45. The Father in heaven is perfect. It's important to know that the Father in heaven is, is perfect. That's how you begin. He says, our Father in heaven is perfect. I could act, I could add, is perfect. It'd be perfectly ha 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 acceptable. Father in heaven is repeated seven times. He uses the word for father fourteen times. There's always math. The Father in heaven is perfect. And I think that that is the, in my opinion, that's the structural stone of Matthew 6, 9 through 15. We pray for there in this manner because the Father in heaven is perfect. The Father is in heaven and the Father is perfect. So what's the meaning of the Father is in heaven and what is the meaning that the Father is perfect? You've got to know the meanings of both of those, don't you think? If you're going to understand the prayer, you've got to know what those both mean. Why does Christ, or what does Christ mean when he says all of that? Why does, what does in heaven mean to Christ as it's applied to the triune Godhead? Because it is applied to the triune Godhead. What is heaven to God? Not what is heaven to us. What is heaven to him? How, how does God define perfect? There's my great question because that's the Kurt Gödel incompleteness theory question. I would ask, what, how would Kurt Gödel answer that question? He would say, God is complete. Perfection is completeness. Imperfection is imperfect. Or, I'm sorry, is incomplete. Hey. Some of you might have counted and wondered why Christ, again, uh, has these three things. Perfect, in heaven, and secret. And what, so I got all three of them. The Father is in secret, in the secret, Matthew 6, 6. So I got this infinite knowing all things being in the secret. And he's in heaven. And he's perfect. How do these reticulate? In other words, how do they mesh together? He gives you three things about him. And what is the secret? And notice again, it's a singular. The Greek word here is mostly translated the or in the or for the or to the. That's, those are the common renderings. So the secret, one secret. It's my opinion that the secret place, as some translations provide, is, is absolutely correct. God is in God is in heaven. God the Father is in heaven, and He's in secret. The secret place. Uh, and I'll have to. I don't have time to cover the secret place today. Just for today, notice those three things: in heaven, perfect, and secret place. Notice that those are attributes, characteristics given to God, the Father. And we're supposed to know that. And that's what that first verse of that prayer says: Our Father in heaven is in the secret place and is perfect. All you have to do to find that is to look behind it and look 
in front of it, and you'll find all of that given to us in Matthew 5:45 through 6:18. They all interact in heaven, perfect, and in the secret place. They interact. They build on one another. They're all interconnected, as we should expect. Jesus describes the Father being in the secret five times. Oh my. Why did he pick five times to say that? Does he know how good at math is the infinite, omniscient Lord God of Almighty? He's really good at math. Does he remember that David had five stones? Does Gabriel have a Goliath cat question? Uh, we have to do five times, he says, in the secret. Is, is in the secret and the five stones, the five brothers of Goliath, or I'm sorry, the five brothers counting Goliath, is that all interconnected? And as you know, the book is alive, the book is perfect, and the book goes in every direction and grabs everything that is close to it. The Father knows the things, it says in Matthew 6, 8. What are the things that the Father knows? What things specifically is he talking about? What are things? What, where are things identified in the Bible? What does the Bible identify as created things? That would be us. We are created things. The animals are created things. The angels are created things. The Father knows the things. Matthew 6, 8. The Father issues or withdraws forgiveness based on forgiveness. Matthew 6, 15. He gives forgiveness or He takes forgiveness away based on forgiveness. He says so, right? Forgive us our debt as we forgive our, our debtors. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Wow, we got lots of things to worry about. And you could inter- interpose the word debts, as most of the translations do. If you don't forgive your men their debts, neither will your Father forgive your debts. Okay? I should throw in because I am the HDRP, so I can. And because whenever I find the immortality of animals discussed in scriptures, I'm delighted. And I want to bring it to everybody's attention. And so, Matthew 6.25, Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, John 1, 1-3, says two incredible things in Matthew 6.25. If you read Matthew 6.25, which is, again, more information on the Lord's Prayer, on His Prayer. He just goes both directions. There's the prayer. Wow, you got all of this stuff to get. Bring it in. Now you can understand the prayer. If you don't, you'll never understand the prayer. You'll think you do. You'll recite it every Sunday, but you'll be wrong all the time. Why would you want that? And wrong all the time is still okay because you're reciting a prayer. You're, you're at least being obedient. I want you to understand it, though. I want you to start thinking about what it's saying. Because it's incredible, as everything that God says is incredible. But Matthew 6.25, he says, Do not worry about your life. Is not life more than food and, and the body more than clothing? That's what he says. Now start thinking. As soon as I write, I say those words. You've been listening to me for any length of time. Start making connections to those words. Do not worry about your life. Where are you now in the Bible? If you said Genesis 2, 7, yay for you, you get more cookies and skittles. Do not worry about your life. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Behold, it says. Behold. Make sure you have the Bible that says behold. That would be the old King James or the King James. Behold, look at the birds of heaven. And the word is the Greek word for heaven. Now, most translations will say air. But I don't believe that's the case. Why don't I think that the birds are not in the air, but they're in heaven? Because I'm over here. Our Father in heaven. Behold at the birds of heaven, for they neither sow nor reap. Yet your heavenly Father, that's why I also say heaven, right? Your heavenly Father feeds them in heaven. If they're in heaven and he's in heaven and he, he would feed them in heaven. Matthew ten twenty nine through thirty one, Luke twelve six. Not one is forgotten by God, he says here. This is the behold. Not one is forgotten by God, not one. And if God does not forget a single bird, what's that mean for any, all those birds? 
The answer is everlasting existence, Genesis 9, 15 through 16. So you just keep going. The mathematically inclined, by the way, ah, have estimated that there have been 10 to the 29th animals. 10 to the 29th animals. That's 100 non-million. And you get your phones. So you can figure out how many. Human beings, pre-flood, if we count all of them, and, we, and that includes... And so I got the pre-flood and the antediluvian and the post-diluvian. Uh, if I can include all of those, the very highest estimates are between 25 and 100 billion. Those are the high estimates. Now you'll see Matthew Henry. Did I say Matthew Henry? No, not Matthew Henry. Henry Morris. Oh, I can't get my Henrys right. Henry rifle. Nice, nice weapon. But anyway. Particularly like the Long Ranger, I think that's a, not the Lone Ranger, the Long Ranger. It's the Long Ranger. It's a pretty nice Henry rifle. It's a magazine-fed lever action. Pretty impressive. I never mind. Human beings, highest estimate, 25 to 100 billion. Henry Morris said, 8 billion or 7 billion in the in the pre-flood, 7 billion in the post-flood. Sometimes they'll say 8 to 10. But that's that's the most you can have. So how many zeros in a billion? That would be 12. How many zeros in a non, one non-million? That would be 30. So you can just look at that. How many animals there are? I'm just saying, how many animals? And he forgets not a single one of them. So why are there so many animals? I'm answering a question that I've asked before. We haven't even begun to evaluate the text of the infinite God's prayer. We haven't even begun. We're into the a hundred non-million animals. Because you cannot disconnect Matthew 6.25 from Matthew 9-13, through 13, or actually through 15. Okay, probably a good idea to bring forth the Greek structure of uh, Matthew 6.25. Most Bibles will say, therefore I say to you, but I think that the that it actually is because of this. Because of this, I say to you, do not worry about your life. Because of what? He says, because of this. And most, like I said, most English transitions have, therefore I say unto you. The same thing, therefore I say this to you. So it's not all that different, but I think because of this conveys the the uh, uh, a greater advantage, and that because of this, and of course, therefore I say unto you that directs uh, redirects if you want, but it directs the reader to Matthew six thirty one and Matthew six thirty four. So it's okay if your Bible says therefore, uh, and 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 both of those Matthew six thirty one and six thirty four they connect as Matthew six twenty seven through twenty eight, which is why do you worry statements from Christ? Christ says, why do you worry? So he's got these statements. Why are you worried? What, are, what, what about life? What about your body? Uh, here's the prayer. All of that. So uh, Matthew 6.25 is incredibly significant, in my opinion, because it underlays all these other positions, all these other statements. Because of this, Christ says, uh, which I submit is all of, Six Matthew six one through twenty four. So the because of this is Matthew six one through twenty four. You can go back to uh, Matthew five forty five. That's the because of this. Because of what of this that I have said to you. Uh, do not worry about your life, or what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body. What what you will put on is life. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Behold the birds. That's the because of this. Uh, he's explaining. He, oh, I'm sorry. All of that before that explains what it, it gives you this conclusion. Don't worry about your life. Don't worry about your body. Consider the birds. Behold. And somebody, some would say that this is easily and could easily be the entire Sermon on the Mount. And uh, I, I obviously I won't discount that at all. But for today, I'm just trying to get you to focus on this Lord's Prayer, Christ's Prayer. And let's not get overwhelmed, though we should be overwhelmed. 
we probably are. I hope you're overwhelmed. How complex is the prayer of Christ? I say it over and over and over again as much as I can. Because of this, I say to you, let me give you kind of the Greek. Because of this, I say to you, the Lord's Prayer, I say this to you. Uh, I say to you, not be anxious about or not, be not careful or take thought. All of those, I, I believe, are appropriate or actually probably correct. The life of you, what you should eat, that's your soul. The life soul of you, what you should eat or what you should drink, nor the body of you, what you should put on. Not the life more is, not the life more is than the food and the body than clothing. That's the literal Greek translation. That's the word for word in the Greek. Now, obviously, I don't believe Christ spoke Greek. Did he know that the Holy Spirit would gather the perfect and the perfect would be in Greek and in Hebrew? I would have Jew and Gentile. Did, did they have that figured out, this triune Godhead? Uh, obviously, I have an opinion. I look at the time. Let me make an attempt to rephrase it. It isn't a very good one, so don't hold me accountable. Is the spirit of the breath of life more than food? Duh. The spirit of the breath of life, that's the life. That's where the life comes from. Genesis 2.7, Genesis 7.22, Ecclesiastes 7.12. I'm sorry, yeah, 7.12. More... Is the spirit of the breath of life more than food? Is the spirit of the breath of life more than the body, which is raiment? Because he says it's clothing. The body is clothing. That's Genesis 3.7. That's Genesis 3.22. Is the body more than the raiment? The body is clothing, and is the body more than raiment? Is that what he's saying? And if I'm in Genesis, if I'm talking about clothing again, I'm in Genesis 3.7. What's 3.7? That's Adam putting on what? Fig, fig leaves, right? I'm in 3.22. What's that? God making tunics for Adam and Eve and stripping off. Is the body more than clothing? Is the body, the body is clothing and is also more than clothing. What does that mean? But what's more than the breath of life? Is the breath of life more than food? Don't worry about your life. Where's your life come from? It comes from Him. Even the unbelieving do not have to worry about their existence. Their existence is absolutely guaranteed by God. It's their destination that is there is the will issue. And so I think that these are rhetorical questions which return us to Genesis 3.7, as I said, and Genesis 3.22, and Genesis 1.30, and Genesis 2.16. The clothing covering of the fig leaves, the tunic arrangements made by God, the giving by God every green herb for food. He gave everything for food. Don't worry about your food. I gave you a bunch of food. Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of certain death, don't eat that. So all of that is emboiled or embroiled it is, it is marinated within this Lord's Prayer. Welcome to Matthew 6.25. That pack a lunch there. Our Father in heaven. Why did Christ repeatedly emphasize the location of the Father? The persons of the triune Godhead are omniscient. Consider that an omniscient mind is telling you that the Father is in heaven. How critical, how important is that part of that prayer? That you understand what that means. Now ask the next the obvious, which is obvious, or the obvious, obvious, or the obvious squared question. Who else is in heaven? He says, our Father is in heaven, or you're our Father in heaven. Who else is in heaven? What's, in the, what's the inverse of that? Who's not in heaven? Our Father. Why is the Father called the Father? He is. He's called the Father. Why is he the Father? What about Matthew 23, 9? Call no one Father on earth. Well, it got to be here, huh? You're saying our Father in heaven because you have to say our Father in heaven. Do not say our Father. Our Father in heaven. Call no one Father on earth for one is of you the Father who is in heaven. That's what he says. There's only one. The Father in heaven is one. There's only one. And so he keeps saying this Father in heaven statement. Again, he does it in Matthew 23, 9. 
Matthew 23, 9 is within the condemnation of the Pharisees. Matthew 23 is the woes to the Pharisees. Christ's woe unto the scribes and Pharisees. Hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. And that, of course, is Bill the Cow's question. He wanted to know, can you make somebody that will always, will, will have no will and will reject God? That's his question. And there it is, Matthew 23, 9. There are eight woes of damnation that the Lord God Almighty, the judge of all things, John 5.22, Revelation 20.11-15, He's the Lord God of all things, the judge of all things. Okay, I'm, on, I'm actually doing pretty good. Uh, I, okay, I have 20 minutes left. Wow, I'm amazing. Okay. <laughs> He's calling them... He, he, he proclaims... Uh, these woes, they fall upon the Pharisees and their allies, Matthew 23, 32 through 33. Eight woes of damnation. That's the judge of, of them. The judge is damning them. How would you like to go into your trial now with that? The judge has already damned you. He did it to your faces eight times. Now you're going to be judged by it. How would you feel that trial is going to go? Not good. It obviously, he has the Matthew 23.9 in the context of the damnation of the Pharisees, so it's pretty clear to me that the Pharisees and the scribes were calling themselves what? Father in heaven. Holy Father. You know they were. I have those prohibitions against them in Matthew 6. I have the damnation of them in Matthew 23. And Christ says, you're all serpents. You're a generation of vipers who cannot escape the damnation of hell. You cannot escape it. Why not? And again, it seems that they're calling themselves Father in Heaven or Holy Father. Why are they doing that? Hallowed Father is holy. So if you want to know why, how holy is your name? How is it what they're doing is shutting the kingdom of heaven against men. And what about the insects? What about the insects? How does that fit in here? That's Bill the Cow's question. He's asking about insects. He doesn't, may not know it, but he is. I'm sure he knows it. He's a very smart guy. So when he's talking about can Satan create a being, being that has no free will and will only rebel, rebel and reject Christ, he's also talking about insects. Among other things. We've got to deal with that. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever really done it. But we're going to have to do it because it's Bill the Gal's fault, fault. And if you can find him, egg his house. I did make the comment to Daniel from Anchorage, you can egg his house. And he agreed with me that it would improve the outside ambiance of his home. It would help him a lot. Plus, he'd have all that protein. Anyway, Matthew 6, 9. That is given to confront, to countervail those who assume the title of Father. There is only one Father. That's the Father in Heaven, Matthew 6, 9. And Matthew 6, 9 declares it. There is only one. Don't do it. Well, there's a Father in Heaven is the element. Father, you've you got to remember. You've got to know what you're saying. When you say Father in Heaven, you're saying that He is... He is perfect because it says, therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. So you're saying Father in heaven is perfect. Father in heaven is in secret. So he's in, in heaven, he's in secret, and he's perfect. Oh, absolutely it does. So does perfect. And so is in the secret. He's the only one in the secret. The Godhead's in the secret. So you have to figure out where all, what all those things mean. And now you have an understanding of the title, Our Father in Heaven, Our Holy Father. And uh, his name contains these solemn references of authority and power. And no created being can duplicate this. No one can do this. Or even approach the role of the Father in Heaven, who's in secret and is perfect. No one can approach that. 
Though there's been no shortage in history of those who assumed his title, they have taken his title. And they've assigned it to themselves. What are you? The dumbest people that have ever lived. But you do, it's still happening today. The Father in Heaven is a religious theological truth and it is blasphemous to pretend to apply those truths. How many truths are there in that name? How many, how many elements in the name Father in Heaven in perfect and secret? I'm sorry, Father in Heaven, perfect and in secret. How many, how many theological truths are there in that? How far reaching are they? And you cannot apply these truths to a created thing. God, God the Father knows the things. You can't do that. You can't apply it to a man, an angel, or a carved image. He says don't do it. Why not? Why can't you do it? What's, what's the ramifications if you do it? Why are those the ramifications or the implications or the consequences? It is dangerous to do it. And there, because it's dangerous, you will not be forgiven. If you go down this path, you will reach a place where your debased mind overcomes you. Well, it's dangerous and therefore it is wicked, stupid, and that's not a compliment. I could say stupid, wicked. It's both stupid and it's wicked. And you're doing it on purpose. And you're doing it for what? What does Matthew 23 say that the Pharisees are doing it for? They're doing it because they're shutting out heaven from men. They're trying to keep men from going to heaven. And that, of course, is Bill the Cow's question and insects and the Nephilim and all of that stuff. Okay, so what are the truths within our Father in Heaven? Hallowed be your name. Sacred and holy is your name, Father in Heaven. Hallowed also carries enshrined and inviolable. It is an inviolable name. You cannot be anything but hallowed. You are holy. You can never be anything but holy. So this is who he is. The Father is in heaven. He's in the secret place. Hallowed is his name. He is holy. And he is perfect. That's the same as holiness, right? No one has this name except the one, the Father in heaven. And that's something that a multitude of people throughout history, they're going to discover that no one has this name. Uh, much to their alarm and their horror and their dread. How will the true Father, the one Father, how will He respond to those who have stolen His identity and His name? Talk about stolen identity. This has got to be the worst identity theft ever. Why would you do it? What's your motivation? Is Matthew correct? Of course it is, Matthew 23. You're attempting to shut men from heaven. How will He respond to you? You will not escape the damnation of hell. Good luck. It's not luck. There is no luck with omniscience, right? So Christ reinforces the importance of his direct order of Matthew 23.9. Don't make this decision to call someone else's, someone else's Father in Heaven or Holy Father. Don't do it. Don't be somebody that does it, that wants to be called Holy Father. How many people have I made angry already? Matthew 26:39 another prayer of Christ. Oh my father, is it possible let this cup pass from me nevertheless not as I will but as you. Oh, let's look at this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your will be done. Let me repeat it. 26:39 Matthew another prayer of Christ. Oh my father, is it possible let this cup pass from me nevertheless not as I will but as you. Your will be done. So he's got the cup and he is saying to the Father, your will, and he, does he know, does the omniscient God, Jesus Christ, the infinite Jesus Christ, does he know that he has mentioned the will of the Father in this prayer of Matthew? Of course he does. So we now know that Matthew 26.39, the cup is associated. The will of the Father is being revealed with the accepting and the drinking of the cup. So now we can learn something about the will of the Father. In case you were asking, and I hope you were, what is the will of the Father? What's well, got something to do with the cup? Second Peter three nine shows up here. What's Second Peter three nine? He wills that none should perish. That's here. The will uh, that none should perish are, is in the Lord's prayer. 
as is the accepting and the drinking of the cup. I got Genesis 15:9, and I got Genesis 15:17, and that's where the smoking furnace and the flaming light go side by side. That is explaining to you the will of the Father. The, the, the 15:9 is the take me. Genesis 18 is here. That's where Abraham and the Father. I'm sorry, Abraham and the Godhead, if you want. I have this. Oh, I shouldn't say any of that. I have this triune. Theodicy. Abraham is, is in the position of, of Christ with the cup, trying to mitigate the judgment that is coming. So we have this collusion of the collision, sorry, not collusion, collision of the, of the flaming light and the smoking furnace, the judgment and the salvation. And so you have to recognize that it's going on in the Lord's Prayer. So Matthew 6, 9 through 13, the Lord's Prayer is disclosed. And is illuminated by Genesis 15.9, Genesis 15.17 to the surprise of no one because I hope that's not a surprise. Genesis 15 is ridiculous. Absolutely astonishing. It just goes everywhere. So every time I find a passage, I go, does it go to Genesis 16? The answer is always right. Yes, it does. Second Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise. Joel 2.32, Romans 10.13, as some count slackness. In other words, his promise, I'm telling you, is in Joel 2.32. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ will be saved. Okay? He is not, that's his promise. But is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What are they repenting from? Second Peter 3.9, duh, obviously stand side by side with what they're, not, what they're repenting from. And that's in Genesis 15.6. Because that's belief. Galatians 3 6, Galatians 3 9, Romans 4 3, Romans 4 9, Romans 4 12. All of that's belief. The point for today, yay, a point, and today. Yay. I got two things right. No, I got one. It's that Matthew 26 39 is surrounded by Matthew 6 10. It's enclosed by Matthew 16. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That is Matthew 26.39 with the cup. That's Genesis 15.17. And again, that's 2 Peter 3.9. Your will be done. The will of the Father in heaven. The Father in heaven. The perfect. The in secret. The in heaven. The Father in heaven has free will. Notice that. Your will be done. Oh. How about that? He's got free will. What are the ramifications of the Father having free will? Who did He give it to? One of, that's one of my favorite questions. To whom did He give free will? Obviously, Satan, Genesis 3-4, Job 1-6-12, Job 2-1-10, Satan says He didn't give it to anybody. And we have a whole bunch of people out there saying that God has will, but He didn't give it to anybody. It blows my mind. But that's what they say, don't they, Dave? I know, it's just amazing. And I'm telling you, your will be done is an incredible statement. And guess where it is? It's in the Lord's Prayer. You're in a tremendous argument now. You're in consciousness. You're in existence. You're in all of these things that come from Genesis 2.7, Genesis 3.22. Or 7.22, sorry. Satan says, no one, none, no created thing, God knows all the things, none of them have any will. That's what he says. That's the lie of Satan. Thus there will never be adversity, he says. There will never be any judgment, Psalm 10.6, Psalm 10.13. That's his calculation. Does he know it's a lie? I believe he does. He's shutting up the kingdom of heaven. Why is he doing that? He doesn't want anybody to go. Why not? Misery loves company, right? Ultimately, he wants God to... Well, here's the thing. He wants God to mourn and sob and weep over the lost. That's Genesis 6, right? He grieves. That's his, his lament over Jerusalem. Okay, which kingdom of God is being referred to? It is your kingdom come. He says, your kingdom come, the Father's kingdom, the Father in heaven's kingdom. It's his, his, his kingdom. So which one is the Father's kingdom? 
And how many kingdoms are there? Five of them. And you should know that Christ delivers the messianic kingdom to the Father. That's 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, I think it's uh, 15, 24. I might be wrong about that. But which one does the Father talk here? Which one is it being discussed here? Your kingdom in heaven. And Matthew 6.13 provides information. Because Matthew 6.13 says, Your kingdom is forever. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Right there it is. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So the kingdom of the Father is the one that is that has the power and the glory forever. So it's the everlasting kingdom, the forever kingdom. So which one is that? And again, 1 Corinthians 15, 20-28 describes Christ as the first fruits of the resurrection of the living, the saved. And Christ's resurrection is the certificate. It's the binding document that guarantees uh, all who have believed. Uh, all who believe in Him. John 11.25 and, and everyone that believes in him will be resurrected to eternal life in the new city of Jerusalem, Revelation 21. So if you want to think of it this way, we get a certificate of citizenship and it's signed and written in blood. That's how it works. It's signed and written in Christ's blood. So that's our certificate of citizenship. And we get to enter the kingdom, the forever kingdom, the glory forever kingdom, the power and glory forever kingdom. And note that Satan has a counterfeit, doesn't he? Because he has uh, Revelation 13, 16, Revelation 14, 9. He has something else, a mark of the beast. So you get a certificate to go into the lake of fire, 2541, or you get a Matthew, or you get a certificate to, to go into the forever kingdom of uh, glory, uh, Matthew uh, uh, 6, 13. Matthew said, uh, no, I should say this. Note as well that Christ says at the cup of Matthew 26.42, your will be done. So he's connecting Matthew 26.39-46 through to Matthew 6.10. He actually, actually puts them side by side. So you know what he's doing. Your will be done. The Father's will connects to 6.13. I'm sorry, yeah, 6.13 and 6.10. But the will is really 610. Uh, Why does Christ include, give us this day our daily bread? I'm moving along here in case you've got lost. The Greek word here is A-R-T-O-N. How many times do you think Christ uses that word? How many times do you think that word is in the Bible? And I would tell you, if you're going to try to understand that word, you've got to go find all of them, right? Just make a big pile and look at them. Just sort through them one at a time. It's the word for bread in Luke 24.30, the bread that Christ broke and gave to two of them on the road to Emmaus. He gives, the, he gives bread, bread and they recognize, oh, wait a minute, he's breaking this bread in a, in a way that we know. And it doesn't ever identify really specifically who those two are in Matthew. But, uh, oh no, I'm sorry, in Luke. But uh, he gives two of them the road to, on the road to Emmaus and there's this behold, Luke 24.13. Christ is recognized by that. He's recognized by how he handles that bread. Now, I always think origami. Does he make a sculpture? I mean, what is he doing here? As soon as he did it, they go, oh my goodness. Oh my God. That's him. And what does he do when they recognize him? What does he do? He gives them the bread in this particular way and they know that that's how he breaks bread. They've been to those services. They've been to the Passover, the second excuse me, the second bread and wine, right? So when he does break the bread, guess where I am? Yeah, that's right, I'm in Genesis 14. Bread and wine. But he vanishes. Why does he vanish? Breaks the bread, they know who he is, and he's gone. Why? This bread here is the bread from heaven, not as the Jewish fathers who ate the bread. That's the typology. This is the John 6.58, the bread of life, John 634 through 35. It is the communion bread that is the body of Christ. Matthew 26, 26. It's the bread that God gives His sons. When He says to us, when you ask for bread, am I going to give you a stone? Am I going to give you the serpent? Okay, let me repeat that. 
The bread that God gives His Son is Matthew 7, 9. He does not give a stone. He does not give Satan. doesn't do it. And if He isn't the one giving Satan, then who is giving Satan? What is the equivalency of the earth and heaven? Because it says, on earth as it is in heaven. He makes them equivalent. Why are they equivalent? The Father's will is to be the same on earth as it is in heaven. What's that? Where is the forever current kingdom? Where is the new city of Jerusalem? Well, it's on earth. He takes the new city of Jerusalem and he puts it on earth. He says so right there. On earth as it is in heaven. What is the totality of that statement? I'm going to ask this. Is this the Mary Magdalene and the Thomas? John 2017 verses uh, uh, John 2027. 20, so I got 2017 and John in 2027. I got Mary at 2017. She can't touch Christ. I got 2027. Thomas can do everything. He's groping the guy. I mean, so why? Why is one able and the other not? Is that what's going on here? Absolutely it is. Absolutely. How far we got into Christ's prayer today? How far we got to go? I hope that's an easy question. What about this? Do not lead us into temptation. Does God tempt men and angels? James 1 3, 13, sorry, says definitively, no, he doesn't. The subsequent, uh, in 1 Thessalonians 3 5 is involved here, the subsequent phrase, but deliver us from the evil one. The evil one is certainly Satan. Why do we need to be delivered from this evil one? Why? Why is it, let me ask, ask this way, how many people has Satan deceived? The answer is all of us. Well, yeah, that's right, but we're created things. And I think he had the same percentage of the angels. He's got a third of them, but I think he pulled them all. Why, why not? That's my position. been that way for a long time. Obviously, Genesis 3.1 and Genesis 3.4 is on the table here. So is uh, Matthew 4. Genesis 3.4 is Satan in his lie. That's Genesis 3.1, cunning. He's cunning. He's amazingly cunning. And we all fall for it. We're all idiots. And they're, they're here. As is Matthew 4 and Luke 4. That's, a, that's the Christ is not deceived. Uh, we have Adam is not deceived in 2 Timothy. I hope. 1 Timothy, sorry. I got Job 1, 6 through 12 here where he's attacking Job. And it says the, the host of angels came before God and Satan was among them. So we got all of these fallen angels. We got all of the unfallen angels. And Satan is among the host of angels that came to see God. The others are already there with God, right? So these that came to see God were the, the army of Satan. And he's among them. It's a very important thing. Uh, John 10.10 10 here. It describes him as greatly evil. Zechariah 3.1, Revelation 12.10, 2 Corinthians 11.14. Satan disguises himself. Why does he disguise himself? You see, those are important questions, right? Acts 13.10, John 16.11. The evil one is certainly Satan. There can be no controversy there. As you would expect, Exodus 17 now is returning. Because if I'm talking about temptation then I've got to talk about Exodus 17. Specifically, Exodus 17, 2 through 3. Is the, uh, 17, 7. Is the Lord among us or not? Deuteronomy 6, 16. That is here. Deliver us. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That's where you're going now. You've got, you know, you got a long trip. And we, and by we I mean me, have not touched Matthew 6.12 and forgive us our debts and forgive our debtors. And touched it. I asked a couple of questions. What does God mean by forgiveness? Forgiveness from what? Matthew 6.15 actually gives us some clear-cut information. If you do not forgive men their sins, their debts, neither will your Father in Heaven forgive your debts. So what are our debts? What do we owe? How do we get into debt? Who do we owe it to? Can we repay it? Who forgives what we owe? Debt forgiveness. I want debt forgiveness. I don't want to. I don't. You know. I don't want to be in debt. 
obviously the parable of the certain king, Matthew 18, 21-35, right? Uh, that's in here. That is, if you do not forgive men their debts, neither will your father forgive your debts. That's the parable of the certain king. What happened to the certain king? He got his debts forgiven and what did he do? Threw people in jail that were owed to him money. So that clearly is there. Without dispute, without controversy, Matthew 18.35 is, is uh, linked to Matthew 6.15. Our definition of forgiveness is rarely, if ever, ever God's definition of forgiveness. We don't know what he's doing with forgiveness. He said we have to forgive them. Forgive them of what? You have lots of things you can forgive them of. One of them is unbelief. Others are anything, any sin that is against you. You should have the, the kind of, you should understand what kind of person you are so that you are not that parable of 1835 Matthew. And you don't go out there and beat on people that have, that have aggrieved you when you have aggrieved others. Right? So why is that? And I'm not even close. I mean, that's just a little tiny piece of it. Because how do you forgive debts? What are we talking about now? If I'm going to forgive debts, where am I going to forgive them? I'm going to do it at the crucifixion on top of Goliath. See, you can't get away from Gabriel from Antarctica, can you? Okay. Our definition of forgiveness is rarely, if ever, God's definition. So we should get God's, and we should endeavor to persevere otherwise. Did you notice? <coughs> I hope you did. I tried to illuminate it. Matthew 6.13 is Kathleen's sons of Belial. That's for Judges 19, 20, and 21. Question, Matthew 6.13. Do not lead us into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. That's what Kathleen's talking about in Judges 19, 20, and 21. She wants to understand that. Matthew 6.10. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That's Gabriel's Goliath question. Uh, and so is forgiveness because that's where that cross is. Well, that's not in the prayer, so I didn't include it. Um, Matthew 6.13 is Daniel's never-ending Genesis 3.4 question. And do not lead us in, but deliver us from the evil one. It's obviously talking about Eve, because Satan wiped her out, right? So clearly we've got to put that in here. Matthew 6.15, that's Bill the Cow's Genesis 6.4 question. Uh, but if you do not forgive men and their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Okay, I have the ability to forgive somebody's trespasses. Is it possible to make a being that can't forgive? That's Bill's question, right? And I got I got to deal with insects because of Bill too. We're all in the same because when you have no, if you don't have the will to believe God, then do you have the capacity to forgive people who don't believe God? Right? See what Bill has done to us, and then he threw in all these insects. And most of, most of the, uh, the, uh, the creatures in the ocean, and I've got to learn every one of them before I can fight back. Not so easy. Uh, okay, I will, as usual, bludgeon you with all of that and more on September 11th. So, those of you who are still awake, congratulations. Your merit badge is forthcoming.